0: Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we talk about situations where you're making the wrong choice that still leads to a good outcome and how to think through that framework. Stick around. That's coming up next.
1: Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Kraftwerk Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Kraftwerk Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions.
0: Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, great to see you. Great to see you as well. And you are enjoying a quiet house, I think, for the first time in a while. Is that not true?
1: It is true. We had contractors in and out of the house for several months, uh, upgrading both of our bathrooms, which my wife likes to say saw the Nixon administration. Not so anymore, they deep. didn't. No, we, we won't have tales of the 70s anymore in this house. Uh, we have fresh, updated bathrooms for the first time in a long time, and a quiet house without free-flowing people coming in and out at any hour of the day, which is certainly less disruptive to my personal life. And I'm happy to have the expense of upgrading two bathrooms in the rear view mirror.
0: Did you have some project creep in there? Because I, I know uh, as we talk about lifestyle creep in, in home renovation projects, that can be really easy to watch things kind of just tack on.
1: It's so incredibly easy to tack on what seem like small expenses to a large project. So when you're talking about improvement budgets of tens of thousands of dollars and they come to you and say we can do this for $500, that seems like such a small difference in the scheme of things that it's easy to sign off on them and just say, yeah, I I would like that. We're doing it anyway. Why don't we go ahead and put this quality of item in instead of what we talked about or tack this onto the scope of work when in isolation, a $500 decision or a $1,000 decision can be a huge expense that you would never take on. But just in the scheme of this big process, it just seems like such a throwaway decision that you do it. Uh, and it's, it's so funny to put that into perspective.
0: I think it kind of puts your and my philosophies in terms of how you and I spend money probably right at odds. Because I've always been this like buy once, cry once sort of mentality where I'm like, all right, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right so that I don't have to do it again for a long time. Now, admittedly, I sort of regret that because I don't own the home where I bought once and cried a lot uh, because I spent a ton of money improving that home and it's not mine anymore. But uh, that being said, I feel like you've always come at it from the other side.
1: Yeah, I've, I've always tried to spend less and think I could get some longevity out of perhaps a, less, a lower quality product. Uh, now, admittedly, I think you've rubbed off on me a tiny bit only because I have seen the downside of skimping on quality and have had to buy multiple times over the course of a period where I could have just had one good thing. So I think meeting in the middle has probably been a, a productive process for us to take.
0: That, that's probably fair. I'm sure a little bit of tension on both sides of that spectrum is, is a healthy thing to have. Definitely. All right. So speaking of decision-making, let's talk about our, our main topic for this week, which is whether your process and outcome are in alignment. So when I think about a decision that I've made, whether this is financial planning, whether this is investing, etc., I really think of it on a matrix of four possible outcomes. Good decision-making, good outcome. Good decision-making, bad outcome. Bad decision-making, good outcome. Bad decision-making, bad outcome. Right Now, obviously, that last one, is where we want to be avoiding at all costs making bad decisions and having bad outcomes that's not where we should be we'd like to focus on the right process good decision making good outcomes but that's not always the case and i've observed that it's really difficult when people are making poor choices that are leading to good outcomes it it ingrains in them this incredibly destructive behavior in some cases or or potentially damaging behavior And this came to mind reading the news because Fred Smith, the longtime founder and chairman of FedEx, is stepping down uh, next month. And it brought back up this old FedEx story of how Fred basically saved the company. And what he did, FedEx had a $24,000 fuel bill due at one point. And this is in their early days. They had $5,000 left. So the company was effectively insolvent, getting ready to go belly up. Fred goes to Vegas with the $5,000 the company has left, sits down at a blackjack table, wins $27,000, and continues the life of FedEx, which now we all know and has just been an incredible American business success story. And so looking at that, I think that that inspires people to think of entrepreneurship as crazy amounts of risk taking or you know the potential for it. And maybe in that moment there truly was not another option. Right. So so backed into a corner, company's insolvent. Maybe you go, you roll the dice. But in my mind, relying on a gamble for for success is the wrong process, but had a good outcome. And so that just kind of led me down a path of thinking about what are some places where I see in financial planning, in investing, people making the wrong choice and then reinforcing that choice by it going well.
1: The first place my mind went to was in investing. So even recently, what I saw someone doing was taking a look at stock prices and determining that prices are low, they didn't have any additional cash. Everything they had was invested in the market. And they decided, well, I would like to buy. So they used margin on their portfolio to buy more stock with money that they did not have, making the bet that stocks would go up. They could sell these stocks at a profit, pay off their loan, and end up ahead, which could work. I, I agree. You know, Having a buying mentality is a positive thing. But at the same time, I believe leverage, too much leverage, can be very risky and dangerous for many reasons.
0: Yeah, when you're adding leverage to a portfolio, I think it's way more dangerous than people think, right? Because you're going to lose, I mean, if you go up to 50% leverage, which is what you're allowed to do in US securities markets, um, unless you've got like special margin requirements on certain stocks, but you can can typically go up to 50% leverage. So, if you've got a hundred grand in your account, you can buy up to $200,000 worth of stock. When you start losing, you're losing it basically twice as fast. So, if you see a 10% loss, you're having a 10% loss now on $200,000, which is really 20 grand of your hundred. So, in your real capital, you just lost 20%. Oh, and by the way, you're being charged interest on what you borrowed. So not only have you lost the money that you're losing, you're paying interest for that privilege. That can go sideways on you really, really fast. And the thing that we think about as being long-term and ultimately optimistic investors, if we are of that mindset, is that we have time on our side. We can wait it out. And when you're using margin inside an investing account, you're eliminating that time because if it goes the wrong way on you, you're going to have a margin call potentially where they require you to infuse new cash, which you likely don't have if you're using the margin in the first place, or you're just going to have these exacerbated losses that, that that don't work. But when it does work correctly, when people get it right, which I would argue is most likely getting lucky, the results can be so powerful that uh, you you really... It's attractive if you start doing the math of well, what if I made ten percent on a levered portfolio? And that, and, and obviously, if you go to much bigger gain numbers than that, it it starts to make people salivate and think, well, this is what I should be doing,
1: right? Certainly. And if you've done it once successfully in the past and have seen that potential for leveraged gain, which can happen as quickly as leveraged losses can happen maybe you think you're really skilled at this and it's not scary anymore because you've come out ahead. I think it's very apt that you gave a casino example at the beginning because I think that's what happens there too, is if you get a lucky sequence of hands or rolls of the roulette wheel, you might think that it's actually not that hard to win money in the casino. You just need to do it, not be scared of it. But just as easily, you get a couple bad blackjack hands in a row you've burned through all of your capital that you've allocated towards the game, and now you have no other options.
0: Yeah, I looked this up because one of the other examples, and I guess this is still sort of a gambling example, um, but I think about the lottery. And I looked up an old CNN article. This is from 2017. And they cited that Americans spent $80 billion on the lottery the year before. That is an incredible amount of capital that is going towards likely losing money for most of the people involved. And yes, you're like if, especially if you know somebody that's gotten rich playing the lottery and we see what these jackpots are. And it's hard not to salivate when you're driving down the road and you see a billboard that says you could win $400 million if you pick the right six numbers or if the machine picks the right six numbers for you. Wouldn't that be great to spend two bucks and win $400 million? Of course it would. But the likely outcome is that you're going to lose your $2 repeatedly and every single time. And yet, $80 billion gets spent trying to win money. You know, And for people that if they're being entertained by that, and I've admitted on this show, I like to play some blackjack, but I don't ever sit down at a blackjack table expecting to win money. And certainly, I wouldn't sit down if I was trying to save our company, Dan, where uh, we're going to go take our final few shekels to, to the table and see what we can do with it.
1: I appreciate you uh, stating that publicly so that if that happens, I can cite this, <laughs> this, this conversation and, and make sure that I did not know you were going to go gamble our funds away.
0: Exhibit A in, in the lawsuit. Now, let's hope that doesn't ever, ever occur. So you talked about margin. I actually think, think the other way, uh, which is people going to cash. You know, that is also an example where people that have had the instinct that uh, the market's going to be bad for a while and choose to sell everything. And most of the time we know is a mistake. Uh, there have been countless studies that staying the core, staying invested is the correct mentality, so much so that do you remember the study that Fidelity did, where they basically determined that they had like dead clients and their accounts were performing best? Do you remember that story?
1: I do. I love that story.
0: I, I, don't, I don't even know if that's folklore or not, but, but I, I do remember that story being so widely like ubiquitous that Fidelity had studied their accounts and the people that traded the most did terribly and the people that did absolutely nothing because they were literally dead. Those were the best performing accounts in the system. So uh, I'd have to go back and look that up to see if it's really true. But again, we think going to cash is almost always a mistake. Now, adjusting an asset allocation, making sure that it's in line with your risk tolerance, all stuff you should be doing. So it doesn't mean never sell. But going to cash is generally a panic move. If it works, if you got lucky, if you happened to be out of the market during some incredible sequence where there's a drop and then you had the fortitude to get back in, it's hard to argue with people that have done that right? That becomes such a dangerous mentality because you start building in this idea that you've got a skill set on top of what was most likely luck because we just don't believe anybody professionals or otherwise is accurately doing this consistently.
1: Right. I wish I could remember who the uh, investment manager was, but there is a joke about some guy. I'm going to attribute it to Ken Fisher just because that was the name that came to my mind. And if I'm wrong, feel welcome to write in. Check your balances at outlook.com. It was like, oh, Ken Fisher predicted <laughs> 11 of the last three market crashes because you know if you say something enough, eventually you're going to be right and you can point to, well, look what I said right before the market crashed and just have this overconfidence moving forward even though, like you said, it was just luck. What are some of
0: the other areas that you think people are, are expressing maybe like the wrong process or um, wrong idea, but they're ending up with a positive outcome most of the time or some of the time that that is like a trap people get caught into?
1: Probably the one people can relate to the most that I bet the majority of our listeners perhaps even are are going through right now is not addressing personal risk through insurance. So you look at the quotes for life insurance, for disability insurance, and you think about yourself and think, well, I'm healthy. I'm not going to jump out of airplanes. I'm just not going to insure myself. I'm probably not going to get injured. I'm probably not going to die too young. My family will be okay. And there are a lot of people who wake up, decide actively not to cover the risk of them losing their income or them losing their life and figuring that in all likelihood, their family will be okay. Uh, And I think for most of those people, they're probably right, right? The chances of dying during your working years or becoming disabled during your working years and unable to continue to earn is Is less likely than that not happening. Yet, if it did happen, that would be a catastrophic event for your family. And you are ignoring just how massive that impact would be.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think the protection planning stuff is so easy to end up on the back burner for people where it it just is, there's no urgency to do it unless you've got a direct fear, right? And So if you're not engaging in risky behaviors where that's going to create that sense of fear for you regularly, creating that urgency for folks I think is so critical. And I think that's one of the things that we do in our role is hopefully try and spur some action towards covering some of those protection needs. Um, I've seen several situations where one income earner is responsible for sometimes four or five people in the household. And it might be even parents, or it might be siblings, or it might be aunts and uncles, and um, you know that financial responsibility I think is so critical to make sure that uh, you're not adding additional risk to the family uh, if if you can avoid it. I have one more example, just that I'm I think of as investing related, which is over concentration. Now, some of the wealthiest people in the world are wealthy because they've been incredibly concentrated in a single. Stockholding, right? People like Buffett, Bezos, Bill Gates, Zuckerberg, right? Their wealth has been created and built through concentrated ownership. And so I think sometimes there's this temptation for retail investors and individual investors to want to load up really heavily on one stock. Now, sometimes that's the company that they work for and they are simply accumulating it really aggressively. Uh, either through grants or options, or simply the appreciation, right getting having the position get big the right way, quote unquote is is when you just own it and it goes up a lot, right? Uh, but that diversification really does matter for for folks to kind of pair that back and not put all your eggs in that one basket. But I think that's another area where when you see it work quote unquote with the wrong process but the right outcome it's so powerful that it becomes really tempting for people.
1: These founders of large companies who are over-concentrated in their own businesses have earned the right to be confident in their ability to generate value through their company. So I think that's a little bit different than me lucking out and picking a company to be 100% of my portfolio because I don't personally have the ability to direct uh, that business and their decisions. But the risk is is similar right there can be disrupt disruption in an industry that can impact my future and that's also true for these um business owners there's no doubt about it and it's it's really interesting i think the
0: the fred smith example kind of glorifies this like high high risk taking high flying bet it all push the chips into the middle of the table c- quite literally example and that's the opposite of how I think about most business owners, most entrepreneurs that I've worked with are actually very uh, conservative risk managers. And yes, when you're, when you're going to add some of your income to being a business owner, or right if you're, if you're going to say, "I might take a lower income for a period of time to have this upside or I'm going to commit the investment," there is risk inherently in that, but I don't think of most business owners that you and I have ever worked with as being... Aggressive gamblers, right? I, I think it's very, very calculated and in many cases more conservative decision making by by a lot of standards.
1: Right. Very calculated risks that you can control. I'm willing to accept a lower income. I'm willing to accept a very different quality of life for a few years for the hope that I can build this into what I think I can. But that is not gambling, right? You're not just leaving it up to chance. You have some hand in the matter. Exactly.
0: I hope this has been helpful for people to think about. And and I would encourage everybody to frame their financial outcomes and the things that they're considering through that lens. Did I make the right choice? Was this a repeatable process that had a good or a bad outcome? Or was I making a poor choice and got lucky versus having a bad outcome in that way? Rather than simply tallying the wins and losses. Because if you're simply looking at the wins and losses... It's really easy to develop an overconfidence, to develop kind of a leaning on things that may not actually be serving you in the long term. And I, I think it's really critical that we think through this and kind of recognize that role that luck might be playing even if things went right for us.
1: If you have any great examples either from your life or things that you've heard of, feel welcome to send them in at checkyourbalances@outlook.com. We have a couple great interviews coming up. I'm very excited to share them with you. Be sure you tune in, subscribe. We want to hear from you. And uh, I think you're going to be excited about these conversations ahead as well.
0: Thanks everybody for tuning in. We will catch you all next week.